0: Welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in just a few moments I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and R.J. Heyman. We come to you every week to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. I'm glad to have you with us. Well, happy 2021 to the two of you. Uh, I don't. I don't really know how to begin this one. I we've taken a little break for um, reasons that will become very clear. Um, but uh, let's just jump in. Uh, Sarah, The before, uh, the, on the last cast we recorded, uh, RJ did give a little um, announcement about some very tragic news that you received and uh, n- not wanting to um, uh, pressure you into saying more than you feel comfortable, but I- I'd invite you to share, perhaps. Uh, how are you doing?
1: We're okay. I mean, honestly, like... It's just, I was actually talking to, uh, my shrink yesterday and he was like, you know, the sadness is always going to be there and it will always be in the background and that's totally normal and totally good and totally healthy. And so I expect to be kind of teary at certain points. Uh, I was going to say for today, but probably for the next decade. Um, and You know, that's just what it is. Um, Mom and dad were killed in a car crash and it was really avoidable and not their fault, Um, which has also been uh, just such a painful thing. Um, It's funny. I've had a lot of people say to me, especially because people like have all read the stages of grief and they're like, do you feel this now Um, that I should feel angry because of because of of just the the total negligence that led to to the accident and to their deaths, but I have to tell you that like the thing that actually that I don't even have anger to access, maybe I will at some point, right? But the thing that keeps coming to mind is like, wow, people um are super fallen and mm-hmm. sometimes they make really selfish decisions, and sometimes it leads to incredible tragedy and thank God that that is not coming as a huge surprise to me. So, uh, you know, I always say how thankful I am for mockingbird. I always say that, you know, I would listen to mockingbird and read mockingbird, even if I didn't have anything to do with them in terms of my own creative, creative output. But I mean, it really has been like this theology that's gotten me through. I mean, the, one of the first articles I went to was, that beautiful piece where Stephen Colbert is talking about his um, two brothers and his dad died in a a plane crash, which, you know, it hadn't occurred to me until I reread the article that he's one of 11. So it was he and his two younger brothers that were still at home. Everyone else had moved out. So he went from being like, you know, your household, Dave, right? Your household, our day, like three boys, mom and dad, to just he and his mom. And he was sort of just – musing theologically and 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 I can't remember where the quote was from but it is what punishments of God are not also gifts yeah. and that's a really difficult thing for other people to hear me say because I've said it around other people but Dave you pointed this out because Dave came to my parents funeral which was so sweet because it is not easy to get to the Mississippi Delta it's also not easy to get out of it if you're raised there but not easy <laughs> to get there and we were talking after the funeral, and you said something so lovely, which I've thought about a lot, which is that it is it is very hard for the people around the people that the thing happened to, to hear them say things like that, right? Because people want to, <laughs> people really want to talk about the will of God at this moment, and God would never do anything like this, and God couldn't cause this to happen, and you know, we can get back and forth and that stuff. I mean, that's a complicated thing to think about, but I take comfort in knowing that God's actions are present in my life, honestly. And I take comfort in knowing that like my parents left us with this like army of people and family members and just beloved professionals who step stepped in and, and helped to take care of us in, in such a powerful way. And you know, I can't work out the will of God question, but I would say that you know what what bad things that that we have been given in life are not also beautiful blessings has been so true for me in this season in a way that I just can't even like express just over and over again every single day. So,
0: oh my goodness,
1: yeah,
0: hmm. Sarah, when we were down there. Uh, at the f- funeral, uh, there were a number of eulogies, and you know your your son, and in- including him, and it was it, very powerful. And someone asked you because your brother spoke, they're like, well, "Why didn't you speak?" And, and your response, I'll never forget. You said, "The rest of my life is going to be a eulogy." Yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, in a lot of yeah. ways, the the days before it, the years before it, um, were a tribute. In fact, you know, listeners you outpouring from people who are aware of this podcast and Mockingbird I mean so many people have told me that they consider you their their friend and their sister and like they know they feel like they know your parents from, from stories. yeah it's
1: it's every single day I get notes in the mail I get um I got a rosary I'm not sure what to do with that but I'm very thankful um I you know I get all kinds of Of these beautiful things and and for me what that makes me think of is I've had so many well-meaning people say to me you should just get in bed and not get out I don't know why you're not in bed right now you should be in bed for days and first of all I'm a mom and I cannot tell you (laughs) the the damage that would cause my two children who who lost beloved grandparents. I mean, my parents were top of the line grandparents, right? Like we found Christmas presents my mom had ordered under her bed in her room and in the attic when we cleaned out their house for my children, like top of the line grandparents. So they've had so much loss. There's no way I can crawl into bed from that perspective. But but for me also, and this is not to say there's anything wrong with crawling into bed, but this grief has to be communal for me. Like it can't just be me grieving on my own. It can't be as much as it, it would be tempting to yell at everyone. Like my parents just died. Like, you know, give me special space, um, which I've done a little bit out of McAllister's in Texas and it didn't go well with the employees. But um, <laughs> I just think like we, we have to share this grief i have to share this grief with other people who are grieving alongside me and it's meant so much like i've read every letter every email you know every message people have sent me um to know that i'm not having to grieve this alone that my children aren't grieving this alone you know
0: yeah golly
1: and thanks to our church community i have literally not cooked since it happened so which amazing! Is you wrote wow. something. It, it, it is amazing, but like I'm hitting this point. Like in February, it's gonna stop. And I'll be honest with you: the thought of cooking is still very overwhelming to me. Like, really? it's like really basic. DoorDash,
2: here you come. I know. UberEats meets <laughs> Because
1: exactly, I'm just like, I just can't. I can't do it. So anyway, and Were I'm you, even less worried about my carbon footprint now because my parents are both dead, so I get to take all their carbon energy. You wouldn't uh-huh. believe the things I could recycle I've thrown away. Wouldn't believe
0: it. I mean, paper plates, that's just the tip paper of the iceberg. Paper plates is just
1: the beginning, friends. It has literally has the recycling symbol on it. And I'm just like, I don't have the energy. It's going in the trash.
2: I'm having a little seizure right here. In the office of you. <laughs> How dare you?
1: Strangely, will of God and recycling hits the same group hard. So we'll see. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's right. What the vet, the, the Venn diagram.
0: Are. <laughs> uh, Lord Jay, do you have anything to allow or to um, say? Obviously, it's a new year for you too. Well, I just don't. I don't know. Um,
1: RJ, I thought I a lot what about you because you, you, I mean, you did, you lost your dad like pretty recently. Like I did think about you and I know people are always hesitant to talk about their own grief, but I was like, you know, there are, I'm 38. There aren't many people around my age who are losing parents. Like, I don't know.
2: Yeah. Um, but I'm going to say it wasn't that hard. Hmm you know, and I think in, in the, it's been about two years now and I could count on one hand the amount of times that I've really thought about it or mm. grieved it or mm. even thought to call him. And, and so, and we had a very broken relationship, you know, and it got better. It got better towards sure. the end. And, and we're going to talk about that a little bit today. I'm going to talk about that in the context of one of the articles that we're going to, we're going to read, but um, your the pain and the grief you're experiencing, you know, and I say this at funerals all the time, like it is a testimony to the love that you shared with your parents and that you experienced from them and what an unbelievable gift that is. And I know that your relationship with them was not by any means perfect. And no. you've talked about that on the, on the yeah. podcast and we all yeah. have, you know, our parents are human beings People are complicated, and, we, of course. Yeah, and we all have to come to terms with the fact that they're human beings. Um, but, um, I'm, as hard as it is, I'm glad that you loved them so much and that they loved you so much. And, and the sense of closeness that you had with them, um, that's a
1: gift, you know? It's, um, it's, the, it's the everyday phone call with my mom that's the hardest. Like, we talked every day, you know? That's, like, the thing that is impossible right now is just, you know? And I have other people I can call, but, like, it's not. it's not my mom. I mean she would just listen to me ramble about absolutely nothing interesting you know and then like ask me sweet questions about the kids and we were super close like that's the it is it's just an it's just a constant thing yeah
2: yeah i'm sorry
1: Thanks. On an upside, I have all of their furniture and my mother really had a proclivity for Mexican furniture. So my house looks like the do you want chips and salsa with that dream I have always had. So you know. got a new
2: car too, didn't you? We did you get a
1: really new car? Is an understatement. It's a Yukon XL. When she bought it, it I eight was miles like, "Miles to the gallon." Yeah, when she bought it, I was like, "This is a ridiculous purchase. I cannot believe you're buying this." And she was like, "It'll be so fun for the kids." And then, like, she kept trying to get me to drive it, and I was like, "There's no way I'm driving that. It's a dinosaur." And now it's mine. And I, I mean, I put this on social media, but. I took a bunch of kids and my kids to the zoo with my friend and I dropped them off cause parking was crazy. And then I suddenly realized I was going to have to park it by myself. Mm-hmm. So I rolled down the window and I yelled out to these two moms standing there. Both my parents died in a RV car accident in November and I inherited their car and I don't know how to park it. Can you help me? And they were like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they just stood there and helped me park the Yukon XL. So. And you're like, have anyway. a nice day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I hear that
0: the sea otters are incredible. Exactly.
1: <laughs> I, um, I call it my church van, which would have driven my mother bananas. Um, so anyway, it's fun. It's just a crazy thing to have, though.
0: Golly. Gosh, Sarah. Well... I want to just inform viewers when Sarah says that she comes from the Delta, she's not kidding. (laughs) She comes from the Delta. I was my first trip down there. I was to Rosedale and, um, you know, I, I always thought about the Mississippi Delta because of the blues and rock and roll and all that. But, um, to see where this, uh, incredible friend of mine was (laughs) emerged into the world and some of the influences, that was a gift to me in a, in a, in a small, uh, way, because that's a, I didn't expect that they'd be into tamales. There'd be Chinese restaurants everywhere, and yeah. um, you know, I, I went into a um, coffee shop the morning after the the service, and they had like a little, like a prayer room in the coffee shop. It was like a high end yes, coffee honey. shop. They're like, just go in there, and uh, you can pray if you want. And you know what? I did. It was that That's kind awesome of a day. that kind of a day, and I prayed for yeah. the the Fergusons and the Taylors and the Condons. and yeah, um, yeah.
1: It's, you, um, it's good to still have a place, you know what I mean? Like, it's good to, like, I went into my aunt's house, who's there, Who's really a maternal figure in our life and was before this, but definitely is now. And, um, and I just thought it's good that I still have this, you know, cause we're, you know, we're losing their house. We're losing, I mean, we're losing everything Yeah. in a lot of ways, but we're not losing it all. So.
0: And now you have chairs that no one's allowed to sit on. I do. <laughs> <laughs> And lots of fiesta wear, just fiesta. So much
1: fiesta wear. It's just, I mean, it is so funny. Yeah, I have a hundred-year-old table from Mexico. I have, I mean, it's just like it's it's pretty wild, but it's beautiful. And um, and I just get not everybody gets to have the table they grew up eating at, like in their house at 38 years old. And I'll just pour a cup of coffee and sit there. There's something even Shot about tequila, the, exactly. <laughs> the structure of like what the seat feels, the height feels like in terms of the tape, but you know, it's just like a very specific comfort. So mm, anyway, yeah. wow. I'm okay. You guys, it'll be okay. I'll probably, you know, like it'll, I don't know. It'll always be there. The grief will always be there, but um, I could not be more thankful for you guys. And for just the mockingbird community.
0: Well, it's been it's been beautiful for me to see, frankly, uh, to see people mobilize in such with so much love. I know. And just ask what they can. Not just ask, because sometimes you people, you know, they, in these situations, they ask what they can do, and that becomes a burden. What I've seen mm-hmm. is just people doing stuff and um, showing it's up. It's crazy. And I got to meet the person uh, from Sarah's college days who just. Drove down and showed up at your house, and it's just, yeah, and uh, she's sort of a saint. And uh, there's all sorts of angels, and and uh, one day I'm sure it's going to come out through your your pen or your voice. But I, I I I look forward to hearing some more of those stories as well as the extremely uh, painful ones because um, yeah, you know, um,
1: the anyway. air is thick right now, you know.
0: Yeah, I was, and I, now I've I've just finished watching the Fran Lebowitz uh, series on Netflix, no. and I happen to she's one of my all time favorite
1: you know,
0: <laughs> people, and uh, to know that your father not only loved, he watched Firefly with your son, yeah, he was really uh, into British TV and crime dramas, yeah, and, and that he he was a huge Fran Lebowitz fan. I, know. I just uh, I. I I'm 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 personally sad I never got to actually meet
1: them yeah we miss him so much he was um he was I feel like my mother is such a big personality Mm -hmm. um that we've you know we and my dad was a writer so he was always very to himself and very in his office and um I feel like I'm getting to know him in a different way since he died as well you know the notes I've gotten from especially from young people who he encouraged it's just kind of like oh you know like he was always parenting
0: it's
1: just, wow. so. yeah anyway we should talk about articles i could go on about this forever yeah.
0: okay um rj anything to share from your break anything, oh, anything anything um january
2: no no it was good christmas was totally and christmas during corona is totally crazy and yeah had a good had a good break and no not really not yeah. really just good to see you guys
0: yeah, I'm so glad to be back and Sarah thank, I thank you for for jumping on. Um again to th- the courage to share this is is not insignificant and I want to acknowledge that. But let's, uh, let's jump into our routine. And the first thing we're going to speak about may be a little close to the bone, but it's close to the bone no matter what is going on in your life. And that's a big article that appeared in the Atlantic Monthly by Joshua Coleman, a therapist, wrote something called, A Shift in American Family Values is Fueling Estrangement. Ooh. And this is a, a, a therapist who works basically with mainly with parents, but also children who f- specializes in estrangement. And I guess um, not just Corona-wise, but over the past, you know, 10 years or so, there's been a real increase in estrangement. So he's trying to figure out what's going on here. Um, this is what he says. Now he says, however they arrive at estrangement, parents and adult children seem to be looking at their past and present through very different eyes. Estranged parents often tell me that their adult child is rewriting the history of their childhood, accusing them of things they didn't do or failing to acknowledge the ways in which the parent demonstrated their love and commitment. Adult children frequently say the parent is gaslighting them by not acknowledging the harm they caused or are still causing, failing to respect their boundaries, or being unwilling to accept the adult child's requirements for a healthy relationship. Both sides often fail to recognize how profoundly the rules of family life have changed over the past half century. Deciding which people to keep in and out of one's life has become an important strategy to achieve happiness. While there's nothing especially modern about family conflict or desire to feel insulated from it, conceptualizing the estrangement of a family member as an expression of personal growth, as it is commonly done today, is almost certainly new. Estrangement seems to affect a small but significant portions of families in the United States, and is happening today against a backdrop of record-high parental investment. This is where it gets super interesting. During the past 50 years, people across the classes have been working harder than ever to be good parents. They've given up hobbies, sleep, and time with their friends in the hope of slingshotting their offspring into successful adulthood. On the positive side, this increased investment of time and affection has meant that parents and adult children are in more consistent and positive contact than in prior generations. Yet in the same way that unrealistically high expectations of fulfillment from marriage sometimes increase the risk of divorce, unrealistically high expectations of families as providers of happiness and meaning might increase the risk of estrangement. One of the downsides of the careful, conscientious, anxious parenting that has become common in the United States is that our children sometimes get too much of us, not only our time and dedication, but our worry, our concern. Sometimes the steady current of our movement toward children creates a wave so powerful that it threatens to push them off their own moorings. It leaves them unable to find their footing until they're safely beyond the parent's reach. Sometimes they need to leave the parent to find themselves. And sometimes children feel too much responsibility for their parents' happiness. I often hear estranged adult children request better boundaries from their parents as a condition of reconciliation. As Andrew Solomon wrote in Far From the Tree, there is no contradiction between loving someone and feeling burdened by that person. Indeed, love tends to magnify the burden. Hmm. As the University of Virginia sociologist Joseph Davis told me, parents expect a, quote, reciprocal bond of kinship in which their years of parenting will be repaid with later closeness. And then Agnes Collard, the University of Chicago philosopher, told me in an interview that this expectation of reciprocity is fraught because today the boundary of parenting is unclear. If receiving shelter, food, and clothing is enough, then most of us should be grateful to our parents, irrespective of how our lives go. However, if parents are supposed to produce happy adults, then fairly or not, adult children might hold parents responsible for their unhappiness. Uh, he concludes, it is sometimes tempting to see family members as one more burden in an already demanding life. It can be hard to see their awkward attempts to care for us, the confounding nature of their struggles, and the history they carry stumbling into the present. It can be difficult to apologize to those we've hurt and hard to forgive those who have hurt us. But sometimes the benefits outweigh the costs. Tara Westover wrote in her memoir, Educated, I know only this, that when my mother told me that she had not been the mother to me that she wished she'd been, She became that mother for the first time. Yeah. Yes. We are all flawed. We should have that at the forefront of our minds when deciding who to keep in and out of our lives or how to respond to those who no longer want us in theirs.
1: You know, they're dead now, so I can tell this story. Mm. That's a joke. (laughs) Thank you, RJ. (laughs) Um, Whoa, what's coming? (laughs) My mom, it's been in the past six months, I was talking to her on the phone, and we were talking about Annie, our daughter, because she's in first grade, and, you know, probably about once a week, things get really overwhelming, and she gets teary, and we kind of have to sit together and talk and read a book, and but I am you know, a little dumbfounded by this. And just because I am like, Oh my gosh, she's so emotional. And so I called my mom and I said, um, you know, I just said, God, mom, it's a lot. I don't remember me doing this. Like, it's like once a week. And she said, Oh, sweetie, I'm sorry. No one would have let you do that. We probably should have. Mm. And like, what a gift. I mean, like at every level, what a gift because it empowered me as a mom to be present to Annie in a way that she needed. And it also like, I love that thing about like, when we apologize, we become that mother that is needed. I mean, I just, I I don't know. I mean, I have a lot of feelings of this because I do know a lot of people I'm married to someone who's had to kind of make hard decisions around parents and, um, And I have this in my extended family in a profound way. Um, And I get it. Like, I really do think that there are absolutely situations in which these decisions have to be made. And also, I wish more people could hold forgiveness a little more tightly when it comes to these decisions. Do you know what I mean? I I wish that maybe they could... Um, hold mercy a little closer. I don't know because I th- I think it doesn't always have to go like this. I think sometimes it does. And gosh, I'm fascinated by this idea of kind of a shift in parenting and expectations. Mm-hmm. Um, I do have um, friends who, you know, um grew up in households where their dads really expected that they were going to like hunt and play football. And then they become adults and they really like to cook and Broadway musicals. And those dads can't quite get past that. Right. Cause they had this expectation of what this was supposed to look like. And I don't know, for me, I think one of the things I try to remember as a parent, and it took me a long time and a lot of like really bad behavior to get to this point, not my children's bad behavior. Mine is like, asking myself what an expectation is. Like, is this an expectation that I'm putting on this kid or putting on me or putting on how this relationship should play itself out? Like, and why do I have this expectation? And like, is it necessary to have this expectation? I mean, I think a lot of the woundedness between parents and adult children comes out of unmet, unrealistic expectations on both sides.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: That's the, I mean, that's the rub Expectations are the law. They're just, they're yes,
1: the
0: law. Yes, 100%. RJ. And it's yeah. not like we're choosing, I mean, I don't think the the article makes clear, it's not that we're choosing to have these expectations. A lot of them we import from our own childhood or our own reaction right. to our childhood. Right. Um, and we don't even realize we're expecting that much. But I do think there's something about the parental overinvestment that probably breeds an increased expectation on both sides, the expectation that the kid would sort of repay you with care yeah. and concern mm, and a certain yes. degree of, 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 of uh, um, s- correspondence. And then also that the kid would feel entitled to like, if, if their unhappiness is, um, completely, uh, was yours to give or not give. And you somehow failed. I think that that's a, an enormously heavy burden for people to carry. And I think I, yes. y- Sarah, I always also say like, I, he says that a, that it's a small proportion of um, families that deal with this. I don't think
2: it's that small. I th- I maybe it's just that. living inside. I know so many families. The church. Maybe it feels like it's everywhere. Share too
1: much with us. Yeah. I don't <laughs> know, but like I agree. I know a lot of people who have at least considered this so many people you know who you, you ask them about their kids like oh
2: yeah I've got a son here and a daughter there and then like a few months later you find out they also have another son yeah. who lives in Washington State that yeah. they haven't talked to in five years who hates them yeah. or they've got a sibling who is a uh, um, just a, a raging alcoholic mm-hmm. you know that no one really that no one really talks about or, mm-hmm. or um, e- every family seems to have um, one person who's very problematic, either has has, uh, cast themselves off or been cast off or everyone sort of, you know, there's two separate text streams, like one with that person and one without that
0: person, (laughs) you know, it's uh,
2: it's a sad, um, it's a sad reality.
0: No, the amount of times I've, uh, when people are walking out of church, say I've I've preached a sermon and I could tell someone is um, emotional, that they've had an emotional reaction to something, the amount of times that it's come out that they're dying for their child to be in touch with them. Like that yeah. that's what I yeah. said, how I understand this stuff about grace and God, but when, how can I get my son to call? And, and I, I, I sit there dumbfounded. I don't, I don't know the answer, you know? Um, but I do know that people have a strong tendency to revise the past. Just this past week, I wrote a, something about youth ministry and... Um, I, it was I, so good, Dave. Well, I had yeah. a, a, a former student of mine that died very tragically and Mm. it made me look back at all of these photos from that time and it realized how much of a discrepancy there was between the narrative I had in my head and the, the 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 joy in the in the photos not that I thought it was drudgery I have I don't have a lot of resentments about it but I didn't I'd forgotten and I, I was telling myself a bit of a, of a story, and I, I quoted Mary Carr, and she's got this whole narrative about her parents, and she had made her dad into be this kind of absent jerk uh, who had abandoned her. And then when she finally mm-hmm. consulted her journals at the same at the, of the time in which her father had cut off contact, she found that, in fact. Uh, he had continued to show up. She, <laughs> she was the one who had uh, walked away. And that's not to say that that's the case in every scenario. I just think that the expectation flows both ways. And sometimes when when in our situation, we're all parenting young children, so we're thinking about it as parents, I think. But you also have plenty of people our age who are dealing with it as children and as adult children. So... Um, yeah, RJ, what what else? I know you've got a lot to say here. I also think you
2: cannot underestimate the role the politics has played in oh my all of gosh, this. You yes, know, the, impo- the RJ. impossibility. How many children <sighs> have just said, I just can't talk to my parents anymore about this because they supported so and so. You know? And and you know, we're we're here talking the day after the inauguration and just the level of emotionality around all of it. Like I don't I don't know. I don't want to be insensitive, or you know, say that there aren't real issues involved here. But my goodness, it's just—it's so off the charts around these these issues. And I think it's really um, divided families and and infected hearts. And it's uh, it's become so primary that it becomes impossible to talk about anything else. Mm. You know, we have friends in our own in our you know you you know people. Who, uh, who have siblings who refuse to come home because of their suspicions about how their parents might have voted in the last, elect- you know, the last presidential election. They've just cut off all contact. Now, that's probably not the only issue, but it doesn't help. <laughs> you know, it doesn't help. So um, I don't know. Here, here's hoping things calm down a little bit and everyone just takes a deep breath becomes a little more empathetic. Well, there um,
0: was a, a sort of a roadmap to this a little bit was provided by Heather Haverleski. Heather Haverleski, who we've quoted a few times, she writes the Dear Polly column for uh, The Cut now. It's uh, We used to be Vulture. And um, the, she fields a letter from a young woman who... Um, is furious at age forty that uh, her parents had an estrangement from her uncle, from her uncle, and it meant that she got cut off. She was an only child and got cut off from her cousins when she and she's always wanted siblings, and her cousins were really close to her, and nothing's ever been the same. And she wants her cousins back, and she thinks she thought this would get easier, but it hasn't. And uh, Heather, in her trademark fashion, uh, kind of just discursively goes at the problem. Uh, or at the issue, shall we say. And this is what she says. She says, I hit a wall with my own family about a decade ago. I just felt tired. Suddenly I couldn't connect with my mother or my siblings or even friends. I felt like I was the only one who wanted deeper connections. It seemed like no one was as intense as I was. No one seemed to have the capacity to love me the way I wanted to be loved. I also wanted my mother to be different. I had a vision of how a mother should be, and my mother didn't fit that vision. Almost every time we talked, I felt angry at her. I wanted unconditional love, someone to lean on, someone who accepted me for exactly who I was. But when I pushed her for more love, my mom would often strike me as distant, self-protective, afraid of my intensity. The more I thought about what I wanted and how far from my reality it was, the angrier and sadder I became. My anger and sadness made me distant, self-protected, and afraid of my own intensity, just like my mother I couldn't let down my guard and be vulnerable and love myself or anyone else. I felt too weak and needy to do that. I was embarrassed of myself. I was confused. But I couldn't have the mother of my dreams. My mother wasn't like that. So what's left? When does it end? It ends when you live in reality. And this is reality. You don't have the family you want. You can feel less shitty immediately by putting all of your intellectual efforts and your narratives aside for a minute. And opening your mind to one thought. What if I'm wrong about everything? Oof. This is, not coincidentally, the most, terif- oh, no. the most terrifying thought you could ever have. The worst possible thing you could think or believe is that you might be wrong about every single thing you've concluded about yourself in the world. She goes on. When my mother couldn't shower me with unconditional love every str- under, under every stressful condition under the sun, that didn't mean she didn't actually love me unconditionally. It only meant that she had her own emotional challenges and therefore she could not become the kind of mother I wanted. This is true because her own mother was loving, smart, supportive, but she was also an alcoholic who raged and turned punitive out of the blue randomly depending on her drinking choices on any given night. Mm. Visiting other people's emotional realities is and will always be threatening and scary for my mother as a result. You don't seem to be adjusting your expectations of others based on reality. You still want the imaginary loving cousins of your dreams. And as long as you're focused on that one desire, you're going to block a lot of other paths to joy and satisfaction that are available to you. The same way I blocked my own, unha- my own happiness by living inside a stubborn space where my mom had to change or nothing else could change. Most of us are wrong about most things most of the time. Oof. This is reality but the world is filled with love for you love from flawed disappointing people their love is not what you thought you wanted but it is enough
2: that's a woman who's done a lot of therapy
0: <laughs> <laughs> sometimes what i think when i
2: read her I mean, columns is like wow it's so good
1: it's oh. i just like you know i keep thinking about um when we got the news about my parents, I immediately went into like eldest daughter. Cause I'm like damn close to a decade older than my brother. And like, he just turned 30. And so I was like, I'm going to have to do everything. I'm going to have to figure it all out. I'm going to, you know, I it's me, 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 me. me, And I'm going to be all by myself and whatever. And then like, I showed up at my childhood home It was filled to the brim with aunts and uncles and cousins. I have a cousin in the military who flew in from Wyoming. Um, I have a cousin who showed up with his baby. Um, No one had on a mask. And we all just like said a prayer and hoped, right? And what was so uh, beautifully unsettling for me, and I I guess this is why it resonates, is I had told myself a story. And that story was... Well, my mom's dead, and she was the matriarch of the family, and even though my Aunt Becky has four children, I probably won't see much of them anymore. And they have little kids, and I probably won't see them much either. They're not nearly as active on social media as I am. You know, all those kinds of things. Um and just make assumptions about their lives and how busy they are and, and how they probably don't want to be in a relationship with me either. Mm -hmm. You know, they probably don't even like me, you know, like just your whole, the whole narratives we create about ourselves in the context of family relationships. So then I walk into this house and they are all there and they have welcomed me in, as a sibling, like immediately. And they have checked on me every day to make sure I'm okay. And my aunt Becky is coming in just to see my children for 48 hours. Cause she's the closest thing they have to a grandmother. And it felt like, it feels like so many things that I thought were true or I'm finding out are untrue. Even just in the boxes of photographs I'm unpacking for my mother. But that was like jarring for me. Like this family that I thought, Oh, I guess we'll lose touch is now the most precious thing in the world to me. And I'm so thankful for it. So I don't know that that's how it struck me. I mean, I love this idea, especially such a good question to ask yourself between, I think 35 and 45. What if everything I believe is not true? Mm. What a great question to ask yourself. About your family, yeah. you know,
0: uh, but also, also about your relationship with with religion, with your relationship with your with with uh, with your spouse, with your spouse, with your I mean, like, romantic relationships, with your job. S- what if I'm actually well, wrong? What if what if it's not that the, my mother intentionally wants to, uh, you know, not love me, but can't or is Uh, trying in some ways but the same thing holds true even for people on the let's face it on the opposite side of the political divide you'd be like what if they don't actually want they're not actively engaged in looking for and trying to like make the world trying worse. destroy our country. <laughs> right. What if they're just right. going about what if they have a different idea about how to get there. And that's not yeah. to say there aren't truths in these stories, of course. but it feels like the question of what if I'm wrong? That's what always drives me crazy well, is the certainty people have not only in themselves, but in their projections yes. of other people. And that's what I, what I encountered when I looked at my, uh, I had, I have a story I had to tell about myself in order to move on from various things in that youth ministry job. And you know what? Um, it turns out we revise the past to fit the present, and we always do it, and this is one thing that uh, God uh, takes into account, I think, that, that when we talk about we're self-justifying creatures, this is part of memory, even, is, is co-opted into that, that pursuit, and so, um, you know, Lord have mercy on us all for the way that we re- misremember uh, who, who we are and who other people are. And, and and allow that to shape everything about how we live in the world. But RJ?
2: I was going to say, you know, when you talk about maybe I'm absolutely wrong about everything, like that's just a synonym for repentance. Yeah. Right? That's repentance, literally the Greek metanoia, changing your mind about yourself, about the world, about your parents, and, and not just having it be a one-time thing, but having it be almost an all-the-time thing, which sounds confusing and terrifying, but is actually incredibly liberating because we're so trapped to our certainties. You know, we're tr- so trapped to the way we think we are, or someone else is. And then that, that you know, the other thing was, um, and we have talked about this before, just we as a culture are so obsessed with identity, with n- you gotta know who you are, mm-hmm. you know, and none of us knows who we are. Mm-hmm. That's its own trap. You know, uh, having to know who you are, having to figure out who you are, thinking that that's going to be the firm foundation on which you stand, but it's not. It's just shifting sand all mm-hmm. the time. And if you can let go of who you think you are, then then maybe you can um, find some peace in the world because you're never going to be able to live up to that that ideal. And, um, and no one else is going to let you either, but you have to sort of let it go. Um, but the part of this article that struck me was yeah, with my father, you know, to get back to what I was talking about earlier, that to the degree that things ever got better between um, him and me, it was when I could let go, you know, that I was never going to have the father that I wanted. Yeah. You know, the father that I that I needed, but I had the father that I had and could I forgive him and just enjoy him for what he was rather than what he wasn't. Um, and it also was, I was given a gift in that, in that he was, um, he was a much better grandfather than he was a father. And to see him, uh, playing with my children and, and sort of loving them and delighting in them in a way that I never felt like he delighted in me was, um, incredibly healing. Um, and I still, you know, I'm, I'm, I I know for a fact I have work to do around that and I'm sure that my, uh, unfulfilled expectations towards him and my hardness on him directly corresponds to my hardness on myself, <laughs> you know, how unforgiving I am with myself. Um, and so this article is incredibly helpful and she's, like I said, she's done a lot of therapy. And, um, and I guess the last thing I'll say, when you talk about revised memories, um, to the degree you can come to terms with the truth of your past and really think about what was it actually like what are things actually like you can drill down to the reality of things um, that's where you're that's where God is working right that, that Jesus is working in the in the reality of how things were and how things are and not in your projections or your fantasies or your um, your misrememberings and as painful as it as it is to to recognize the truth of things that's where you're actually going to find God mm. at work. Um, there's,
0: I mean, there's an extent to which the stories we tell ourselves are not, I don't want to make it sound like they're always self serving in the obvious way of making ourselves feel better in the present. They can also make us continue to feel worse. In my own case, yeah. I was, what I surface in that article is that like I was kind of married to a narrative of myself as a, you know, uh, only oh, affirm your identity, only remembering <laughs> the, the awkward parts of youth ministry and the stuff that I was di- excited to be done with, like playing guitar in front of a bunch of people when I was just <laughs> mediocre, you know, and and as a guy who loves music and knows, That's it, deeply has true. has a sense of like what actually good music is like. I think about it and I cringe. I'm like, Ugh, I can't believe I did. But that's, then I, if, if, if you have a self-flagellating tendency, like I definitely do, I have to disown this past self because it's, it's like, otherwise it's too much of a judgment on my present. And so to look at these photos and realize, wow, we, we actually did something quite good. And uh, people were so happy. And, you know, I, I, instead of regretting I didn't go to graduate school, maybe I, uh, I, maybe, I, maybe those years weren't wasted after all. And that's a very healing thing. Um, the other thing I was thinking about is in this article, because there's, a, as with most of what I think Heather writes, there's, there tends to be a punting at the end of sort of this just de- declarative you are enough stuff, which I think is nice, but it's much more potent if it's married to uh, a, a declaration of God, uh, you know, because um, for people who not only didn't have the parent they wanted, but actively had the parent they detest and who was terrible or abusive. One of the promises of the gospel is that, um, that you may not have the earthly father you, you, you wanted, but you, you have a heavenly father. Um, you know, there, there is a... Maybe that's why Catholics love Mary so much, because they can work out their troubled problems with their, with their mothers that way. But I don't know. I, th- I think that there's something... Um, to to say that you you are enough because of who God says you are, um, and He He didn't just say it; He like He, he bled for it. I, mean, I think there's potency in that that is undeniable to someone in the situation that this person is in, where they just cannot accept the fact that they didn't get what they wanted.
1: I I keep thinking of these. I found so much stuff in going through some boxes from my mom's office and stuff that. I do deal with some frustration with her that I'm like, how did I not know about this until now? Mm. Um, But like two things I found that I just are staggering to me is one is a, an album that was probably seriously put together in, uh, maybe 1946, I don't know, but really old And it has all these photographs, mostly of my grandmother and my grandfather traveling out west on motorcycles together. What? And my grand, it's in my grandfather's handwriting. And he would write these things underneath, like, she's so beautiful, under pictures of my grandmother. And, you know, he took his own life when my mom was two. I never knew him. And to get this, and I knew he was sort of this dreamy, kind of, you know, artistic farmer which obviously was tough for him um that that just to get this glimpse of him was so beautiful and it made me think about how much my grandmother lost you know she remarried um my step-grandfather who's a nice guy but like wasn't like this and and how hard that must have been for her and then in the same day I opened up a photograph of my grandmother I had never seen before and it is the same grandmother. And it is when my mom's brother Jim died, uh, which would have been, you know, gosh, uh, my mom was eight. So six years later, and it is like the, the military, I guess when you die and you, he died with honors takes a photograph of you, like as the mother or whoever is receiving the widow, receiving this certificate. And my grandmother is in head to toe, like, black like pillbox hat the whole thing from the 60s and she looks so sad and the general or whoever who's handing it to her looks like he's weeping Mm. and you know when i think about that i think god bless my mother for even apologizing that she wouldn't like hold me in a chair while i cried because i cannot imagine how hard it was for my grandmother to attach to her after so much loss Mm. I mean, I think yeah. it's staggering that I'm able to hold my own daughter in a chair after seeing that stuff. So I do think that there's, I think that there's something that we have to really remember when we think about our parents' histories and what they bring to the table. And and we ha- we're going to have to face those own things in ourselves, our own lies We've told ourselves about ourselves, about how we're the best parents in the world. And we're so self-actualized mm-hmm. now and blah, 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 blah. And it's like, you know, one of my favorite priests once said to me, like, I who knows what my kid is going to ask me to apologize for when she's older and I'm going to have to, you know, like, it's just, I don't know. I think, but it's such a grace thing. And I think that's where we, it kind of can get lost when it's like you're enough, I'm enough kind of narrative. It has to come from the outside. Yeah. yeah. Like it does because there's still like this, there is this part. Cause when I've said that to people about their parents, they're like, people will still be like, but you know, Like, they still should have gotten it together. And it's like, well, I mean, probably not. But, like, also, like, there has to be some grace that comes in in order for your heart to soften enough to hear the truth, you know, that maybe everyone isn't against you. Maybe your whole family narrative isn't against you. Maybe you are so beloved, Mm. you know. I mean, I just, like, I keep – I found a card today in my drawer, like our junk drawer in the kitchen, and it said – it was from literally two years ago, and it said – happy birthday we love you sarah bell which is what my parents called me when i was little and it's like you know you just you have to remember that these are whole complicated people and that generally speaking parents usually really do their best to love their children wow that's beautiful
0: sorry no it's okay gosh i you know another thing this clearly brings up a lot for everyone um I'll never forget, one of the things I feel worse about, someone was asking me the other day about um, uh, like a, a childhood memory that they, I could that could fix, or an adolescent memory I could fix if I could. It's, it's sort of a part of a prayer thing, actually. And uh, I remember one thing that sprang to mind was right it was actually sort of later years is after high school where um some friends of mine and I decided we just were so sick of someone in our friend group <laughs> and it was time to just cut this guy out like he was just so irritating he made every we felt like he made everything worse and um <laughs> was you know had all the the just it was, a, it was a it's rj i was gonna say
2: don't talk to me about, I, this is, this is, I'm, I'm getting traumatized first it was the recycling now it's this well okay this is a
0: guy who had some anger issues I we say and was a little tyrannical in the way that he conducted himself yet there was also some wonderful things about him and i remember we just i just one day i i don't know how i got appointed to be the guy but i wrote him an email just to be like i'm sorry i'm no longer interested in being friends with you please stop contacting me and it was a terrible terrible thing to do. It was a terrible thing It was not No one who has abused me You know When right. we talk about The reasons people have To estrange themselves From other people There are reasons right. To estrange you sure. This there was not reasons. one of them And right. I remember
2: I deserve to be happier than. I remember this.
0: telling my dad The story And and try, and phrasing it clearly In a way to let myself Off the hook Or to get his, sure. his approval And he very rarely Is a person That kind of contradicts you In that in When you can tell That you've got something Emotional going on But he said He paused at the end He's like well I don't know, David. I, I'm not sure we, we really get to choose the people who who God puts in our lives. <laughs> I was like, damn it! You know. <laughs>
2: um, and Dave and I are still friends. Da-
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, well, there's something God given, and that desire for control and dictating yeah. these things. Yes, it, there can be reasons to estrange yourself. But there can also be a lot of justification and things to be repent for. I'm sorry right. I did that. And I wish I could redo it. And if I want to stay up feeling terrible about myself, I think about that's one of the things I think about. <laughs> RJ, I, I love you. and uh, <laughs> <laughs> Don't you ever forget it, David Saul. <laughs> it was not RJ, for the record. Um, oh, well, let's move into the last thing. It's a remarkable article. Well, you know, every year around Christmas time, there's a spate of articles about Jesus. Uh, there's a great one in the New York Times by Pete Weiner this year, and then it got people got upset about it in the Daily Beast and this sort of historical Jesus stuff. But the one that I found most interesting was December twenty eighth in the New Yorker. Vincent Cunningham. Wrote about that. There's been, they've released the Jefferson Bible as like, or there's a book about the Jefferson Bible. If you don't know what the Jefferson Bible is, Thomas Jefferson, a deist that he was, and I'm writing, speaking to you from Charlottesville, Virginia, which is Jefferson County, you know, it's everything Jefferson. He,
2: the center of the Jefferson cult,
0: he decided to take the Bible and essentially mutilate it and take out anything that was supernatural or, um, uh, miracles, said he, and he just left the rest, and he entitled it, The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth Extracted Textually from the Gospels in Greek, Latin, French, and English. A really catchy title, Tommy J. Well done with that. Um, but it came out, and people, um, he had tried, uh, this, is, this is Vincent Cunningham writing, he had tried once again, as he put it in a letter to a young acolyte, to separate the, quote, the gold from the dross when it came to Jesus Christ. Jefferson's Jesus is born in a manger, but there are no angels, no wise men. At age 12, he speaks to the doctors in the temple and everyone is impressed, but he doesn't say that he is quote about my father's business. When Jefferson's Jesus suddenly has disciples, it is not clear why they had decided to follow him. Jefferson <laughs> includes Jesus' encounter with a man with a quote withered hand in his argument and his argument about whether it is lawful to heal on Sabbath days. That's the gold in this story, apparently, is the idea that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. The dross is the part where Jesus turns to address the poor man directly, like a real person, instead of a prop for conjectural argument, and then heals his hand. So he left that that part out. Then he it goes on further uh, because he, the, the and he says in the years before emancipation, the best arguments against slavery were also arguments about God. Throughout the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, Douglass emphasizes the vulgarity and seeming godlessness of the overseers, slave breakers, and masters of the South. South, he shows them cursing and drinking, which he knew would horrify the largely temperate, highly religious abolitionists of the North. Jeff, uh, Douglas wrote, I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slave-holding, woman-whipping, uh, cradle-plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of this land. Douglas wrote, indeed, I can see no reason but the most deceitful one for calling the religion of this land Christianity. But Douglas says Jesus is not Socrates like Jefferson's he is as Douglas wrote in my bondage and my freedom, the quote, redeemer friend and savior of those who diligently seek him. Douglas did not wish to remove Christ from the gospels or to separate the new Testament from the old finding truth in Jeremiah and Isaiah, as he did in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John fast forward since 2011, a monument to Martin Luther King jr. has sat across the water from the Jefferson Memorial, almost engaging it in a staring contest. The result is a rich spatial symbolism, two ways of seeing Christ duking it out. King MLK saw Jesus in much the same way that Douglas did as a savior, a redeemer and a liberator, sorely degraded by those who claimed his name most loudly. During the Montgomery bus boycott King reportedly carried a copy of Jesus and the Disinherited a short beautiful book by the minister and writer Howard Thurman in his preachings and writings Thurman reoriented reoriented what he called the religion of Jesus pointing out what it might mean for those who had lived for so long under the thumb of the likes of Jefferson Jefferson's Jesus is an admirable sage fit bedtime reading for seekers of wisdom but those who were weak or suffering or in urgent trouble would have to look elsewhere The masses of men live with their backs constantly against the wall. Thurman wrote, what does our religion say to them? Thurman's Jesus was a genius of love, a love so complete and intimate that it suggested a nearby God who had grown up in a forgotten town and was now renting the run-down house across the street. That same humble deity in the course of putting on humanity had obtained a glimpse of the conditions on earth, poverty, needless estrangement, a stubborn pattern of rich ruling over poor and had decided to incite a revolution that would harrow hell. This is a Jesus that Jefferson could never understand. In a world as compromised as ours, a soul so exalted was always destined for the cross. Jefferson's Bible ends before the resurrection with Jesus crucified by the Roman occupiers as the gospel tells us he was. Jefferson's austere editing turns the killing almost into an afterthought, the simple consequence of having offended the wrong people. For Thurman, the crucifixion was an emphatic lesson in creative weakness. By sticking out his neck and accepting the full implications of his own vulnerability, Christ had radically identified himself with the worst off. Those societal castoffs who could never get a break now had a savior and a champion and a model. This, for Thurman, is as great a teaching as anything that Jesus merely said. Where death, for Jefferson's Jesus, is an ending... For Thurman's, it is a necessary precondition, and just a start. There you go,
2: from the New Yorker.
0: <laughs> I know, right? Praise God. I'll, it is I'll edit that down a little bit when we when it goes out. But
1: he... just cut out all the Jefferson parts and keep the Thurman. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, it reminds me. I mean, this is a little. I want to talk about the personal parts of it, but it reminds me of Augustine too, right? Augustine, mm-hmm. before he was a Christian, was a Manichaeist and he knew the the Jewish scriptures, but they were too. Um, he couldn't handle it. He couldn't take the the earthiness, and he wanted something loftier and wiser. And at the same time, he's fathering children at a wedlock and sleeping around, just like Jefferson, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but Augustine was able to break through and tell the truth and find a savior that he needed. And apparently Jefferson just couldn't ever get there. He couldn't um, face the truth of his own sinful actions. He had to live in a fantasy world of, of wisdom and purity and philosophy or
1: something. Mm -hmm. Um, It's It's so much safer there though, right? I mean, like we know a lot of um, Jefferson's sins and I think (laughs) There were a lot of them. I mean, not that we all don't have a a lot, lot. but there were a lot of them. And he was a super powerful man. Um, And so there's some sort of, you know, he he did not want to ask himself, what if he was wrong about everything? You know, (laughs) like, um, I think there's some real consequence to that for him. But um, Howard Thurman's. book, Jesus and the Disinherited is a book that I read with uh, my college students, um, really in the wake of the black lives matter movement Mm. this summer, we read it together. It's fantastic. If you have not read it, pick it up. He, he, it's excellent. The other thing I would say about Thurman though, is, you know, often with our black theologians, we can do this thing where we just want to read about the stuff they say about race and we should not do that. (laughs) We should read them Hmm. as we write white theologians that they have a whole breadth. And, you know, he's, he's written many, many books and they are all fabulous about many different things. So I, I would just, he's a daily meditations book. That's just lovely. Hmm. Um, So I I recommend him wholeheartedly. Um, But for my students, one thing that struck them that struck me uh, and and they don't talk about it in this article, but is that he writes about Jesus certainly as this right poor kid from Nazareth, you know, and could identify with the poor and the cast aside in the world. But then when he talks about St. Paul, he actually talks about him and, and because St. Paul is so different from Jesus in this way, right? Because St. Paul is so privileged and, You know, he comes from the, you know, he's more educated and I mean, sort of all these things that really Jesus was not. And that even, even St. Paul was saved. Mm -hmm. Thurman's grandmother had very strong opinions about Paul. And when Thurman was a child, she would have him read the Bible to her and she would always make him skip St. Paul. (laughs) Yeah. So it's a pretty, I mean, it's a really thing. She'd fit well thing. in
2: certain denominations <laughs> today. <laughs> she would do she, great.
1: She would. <laughs> She'd be ordained. Um, <laughs> she, she <would. laughs> but, 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 and part of that for her was the way that Paul talked about slavery, but also Paul was sort of in some ways unrelatable for her, right? Um, in wow. a way that Jesus, uh, was fully relatable. So, Anyway, I just love that people are getting to know more about Howard Thurman and um and also I like that, you know, I I mean, I've always been fascinated by Thomas Jefferson's Bible and haven't we all wanted to do this? We all do it already. Haven't we all? We all do it. Like take but literally take a pair of scissors and just be like, "I don't like this part." You know what I mean? Yeah. And just cut it out and be done with it and, like, not have to face our sin. I mean, this is... No, liberals do like, it. Conservatives
0: I, do it. It's like we, we all have... We all create it in our own image, right?
1: Yes. I mean, absolutely. I am throwing plastic away in the general landmines because I've literally done the math on how I've earned two more carbon footprints through grief. I mean, you know, <laughs> like, we all do it. So...
0: Well, I, I think about the way that... RJ's just shaking his head. Well, th- we're dealing with the way we revised the... <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> Jefferson was revising Jesus here, and in a lot of ways, yeah. we, uh, Jefferson himself, the, the, the article talks about how Lincoln revised the past about Jefferson to use him as a yeah. real um, person, citing the Declaration of Independence to say, to but ignoring Jefferson's own experience with slaveholding, and that we revise the past to fit the present. So that Jefferson did it with Jesus. Lincoln did it with Jefferson. Uh, We do it now. I think now we're in a situation where you're constantly talking about people revising the past and making it so that that we look back and we think Jefferson was only a slaveholder or only this terrible person Mm -hmm. when in fact he did write the Declaration of Independence. He did do a lot of amazing things. Mm
1: -hmm. He did, yeah.
0: It's not, American history is not simply, it's, it, it, we're trying to face the reality, not craft a new narrative that is, just, that is just sort of edited in the opposite direction, which I think is the tendency for people who want to justify whatever they're trying to do in the present. But um, that's why this is so interesting. And what I thought to myself is that uh, Jefferson wanted a Jesus that, that didn't really need to save him. And Thurman was said, "What does our religion have to say to people whose backs are against the walls?" Yeah. And he's not just talking. He's not just talking about uh, a, a one racial category. He's talking about right. this is the the Jesus. Um, who Thomas Jefferson didn't really get because maybe he didn't feel like his back was against the wall or maybe he didn't want to engage with that part of himself. As you said, Sarah, maybe he didn't want to ask himself if he was wrong about everything and chose to only believe the good things about himself rather than reckon with it, with the negative. It's this constant push and pull of mm-hmm. justification, belief, and ultimately salvation, and the way it's being played out with the, the the Bible and trying to edit it in such a way that you don't really have to uh, confront your own self, I think is um is is kind of dastardly. And yet, I also mm-hmm. know that I do it myself. So, <laughs> uh, RJ, what what else do you think?
1: Well,
2: the thought that occurred to me. And again, especially as we have been in the midst of such an incredibly heated political moment, you know, and I think it's been a tough time for kind of preachers to know what to say and what not to say, um, is that Jesus kind of refuses to be abstracted and he refuses to be co-opted into our own particular agenda that he only, like you said, Dave, he, he insists on being encountered on kind of an individual level, you know? And whenever people in the Bible are trying to co-opt him or trying to abstract him or make him into something that he's not, you know, uh, a good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You know, uh, right straight down to to Thomas Jefferson. He just always, he cuts through it all and says, um, you know, what about you? Like, this is about you and me. This is, you have to, I'm I'm dealing with you as a person and not, I won't get on your bandwagon. and uh, and I need to remember that as I'm as I'm I don't know preaching teaching ministering but also like reading the Bible myself, um, resisting the impulse to form uh, Jesus in my own in my own image um, or according to my own uh, fears, but to do my best to present him um, sort of as he uh, as he is. Um, and really, the only antidote, like you were saying, is to actually read the Bible and not just the parts you want to, <laughs> you know, but the parts that are sort of uncomfortable, mm. um, that don't fit into the the narrative that you carry around. Um, yeah. So that's, I, yeah, I see, Jefferson just trying to to abstract Jesus, making him into something that he's he's not, and it robs him of all his power because the power of Jesus and the power the power that someone experiences is, is when they um, have a personal encounter with Jesus, where they feel personally spoken to um in a in a powerful way in their in their heart and not according to some um you know cause or or philosophy that they're trying to fit him into.
1: Yeah, I mean I think it's easy to especially people of us of of previous eras to look at them in their faith and say like so it felt like so much of their faith was about like sort of moralistic virtue and like, as they defined it and so much of it were, it was about kind of appropriate behavior for the time. And like, were you polite and were you like th- these definitions of godly? And like, you know, it's just really tempting to say that we're so far beyond that now, mm-hmm. but we're not, you know, like, it's just fascinating to me. Like we still have our own ways that we <laughs> sort of, self-justify the way that we're wrong about everything and none and none actually none of that in any era is relevant to the gospel none of it in any era is actually what god is asking of us like god is asking for our hearts like that's what Mm. god is asking for um so it just you know it's it's i i do think it's easy to kind of look back at these Founding father types and be like, well, you know, they just, you know, and they did, they were super sinners. We have their sin documented, right? But like, and also, like, they, you know, so are we, and and you know, there's,
2: we all have search histories.
0: We all have search. Don't histories. say that, RJ. That, <laughs> that, the, 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 don't remind me. The um, <laughs> what I, what I also hair
1: loss, <laughs> women in late thirties. <laughs>
0: But you do get to the point where MLK, at least, he's quoting Martin Luther King there at the end when he talks about, you know, death is not the end. And uh, mm. you can make Jesus into purely a model for this life or activism for this cause or justification for the country going this direction or, or that direction. I mean, so we've seen it on all sides right now. And ultimately, what you have in King, um, though he had strong feelings about that, th- this life, is that he's preaching the resurrection of the dead. And he's, yeah. he's talking mm. about that death is not the end. And that is hope. And that's not, um, th- that is, uh, that's so transcends uh, what yeah. all the stuff mm. that we're wrong about, <laughs> you know. Um, and it provides hope for us in the midst of being so wrong about things. And, um, you know, I don't know, it, it, it. It gives me hope in the midst of hearing, you know looking back at my past and also thinking about person people who've died. and um, anyway, thats, that's a, that for me, it was a really beautiful uh, opening salvo for the beginning of the year for him to say that yeah. jefferson is a sage you can consult on how to live uh, th- th- jefferson's jesus i'd rather not thurman's jesus uh if
1: you want end up in jail is the
0: one who uh <laughs> yeah. who s- sees that crucifixion is the prelude to resurrection and that yeah. death is not the mm. end so and praise god for that
1: praise god for that praise god all right yeah it's praise funny god for you like guys. our day, i keep <laughs> thinking about like all the political stuff because my parents were very, I mean, progressive Democrat. That was their thing. That was their thing, y'all. We ran a political campaign out of my house when I was in elementary school. My dad grew out a ponytail. So yesterday, a lot of people I love sent me messages and they said, "I wish your mom could have seen this. I wish your dad could have seen this. You know, this is amazing. I wish they could have seen this. I wish they could have seen this." And I didn't text this back to anyone because I don't want to. I want to, I love, I love that people are thinking of me and that they were remembering my, my parents and especially my mom fire. But what I wanted to text back was, but they're getting to see Jesus uh. and that's really good. And like, you know, that, that actually is better. So <laughs> I know that's hard to believe right now, but, <laughs> but that's actually better that they're getting to see Jesus. So, yeah.
0: Well, praise. Let's, I think that's the part to end. Thank you, guys. It's so good to be back with you.
1: Good to be back with y'all. I love you guys.
0: Love you, too. Love you guys, too. All right. Bye. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.mberd.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info Audio production for the Mockingcast is provided by TJ Hester. And if you like what you've heard, please drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating or review. Until next time.